Today's show is brought to you by Bob's Red Mill, sharing nothing but the best in whole grain nutrition and committed to their mission of good food for all. Learn more at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Listening to Eat Your Words on Heritage Radio Network. It is midsummer right now, so hopefully you're seeing a lot of good foods at the farmers market. Maybe picking up some CSAs. And you know, a term we hear a lot um, in the food world is uh, the or the idea of food distance or food miles. You know, how local is your food, and uh, you know, so forth. But um, my guest today is also talking about you know how far are you from the people who made your food and the people who are all throughout the food chain. You know, working to market it to grow the you know feed for the animals and so forth. And I think it's a really interesting um, perspective to look at the food um, system. So he is actually a professor of sociology and the associate dean for research at the College of Liberal Arts at Colorado State University. And uh, he's also the author of The Real Cost of Cheap Food, The Sociology of Food and Agriculture. Um, So his book that we're um, talking about today, it's his most recent book. It's called No One Eats Alone, Food as a Social Enterprise. And we're very pleased to welcome Michael S. Carolyn on the air. Hi, Michael. Hi. Hi. Thanks for having me. It's uh, I'm looking forward to this conversation. Yeah. Yeah. I'm really excited by, um, you know, discovering this, this different, I guess, uh, you know, perspective. Um, you know, a lot of people uh, apply a more, you know, science, um, you know, have a lot of farming background that can speak to this, the issues about um, our current food system or foodscape, as you, as you say, or food landscape. Is that your preferred term? That you mentioned? Um, uh, yeah, I do like using the uh, the term foodscape for reasons that we can, if there's time, we can we can certainly talk about. Yes. Okay, but um, is is the sort of general gist, um, you know, uh, that we aren't connecting the dots between the people um, who work in all facets of the food industry um, enough? Sort of um, the main sort of thrust that that takes this um, uh, that you take in this book. Uh, yeah, that's, that's one of the thrusts, <laughs> mm-hmm. at least. I guess it kind of plays on even the, the title to some degree, No One Eats Alone, because, of course, that's what um, is often said, is that, that one of the problems is that we, we do eat alone. And I want to kind of play off of that to, to tell a story about how populated our foodscape is, which just goes beyond knowing your farmer. I mean, that's something we hear all the time. Know thy farmer, even, yeah. Yeah, but even if we were to follow food back all the way to the farmer, that misses a whole landscape of people that could be involved. For instance, just just one really quick example that I sometimes like to give is that um, I spent some time interviewing a gentleman in China who was managing a, an industrial vitamin plant in China. And, you know, as you may or may not know that the, the 
federal law in the United States as well as in Canada and the U.K. and other places require foods like milk and bread to be fortified with, among other things, vitamin D. And here was a chemical plant that manufactures the great majority of the of the vitamin, vitamin D, D for, <laughs> for the entire world what? that goes into fortifying our foods. And so on one hand, we talk about knowing your farmer, but, you know, in some respects, we should also have a slogan that says something like, you know, know your, your industrialized vitamin D manufacturer, too, but that's not terribly sexy. But there's all these other people that go into making what our food is, and just knowing the farmer traceability back to a farm, it misses a whole bunch. Yeah, yeah. I was thinking, uh, I was going to make a joke about how we're sort of... Um trying to play six degrees of Kevin Bacon with our bacon <laughs> sometimes. And, um, I love that. You know, yeah. Sometimes it works, sometimes you can't. But, you know, you're leaving out all these other facets of food, and that's really interesting. Um, at the same time, you know, you note that there's all these additives, you know, like, uh, I don't know, enriched, you know, enriched wheat flour now has, like, you know, these chemists who are making who knows what, the vitamin D for milk and so forth. And, you know, there's lobbyists involved. There's so many roles in the food scape. I think it's really interesting you point out in the beginning, near the beginning of the book, that at the same time we have so many, um, I guess, producers or parts of the production chain, we are also reducing the number of foods that we actually eat in the society down to, like, something like 10 crops. Right. And that's yes. a shrinkage <laughs> that is unusual. You wouldn't think that that would go hand in hand. We used to eat a lot more stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, you know, that has not only implications for, you know, diet and biological diversity, but, you know, as, as a social scientist, too, I like to remind people when I talk about things like biological diversity that you can't talk about biological diversity without talking about cultural diversity as well, because, you know, unless there's people that actually have a desire to want to eat those types of foods that require, uh, say, blue corn, for instance, mm-hmm. um, there's no reason for producers to produce blue corn and and no reason for restor or for uh, um, grocers to supply it. And so this cultural element about our tastes and about how we know to prepare these foods, this is all, you know, has to be wrapped into this conversation when it comes to biological diversity and dietary diversity, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we talk a lot about the success stories, I think, sometimes of, re- you know, reintroducing heritage or heirloom tomatoes. But... Um, for all those, you know, newly re-embraced eggplants and so forth, there's a lot of things that people just don't want to eat because of um, it fell out of fashion or who knows what. Um, it, it's very much a part of, you know, each culture. Like you mentioned, you know, some countries don't want to eat, uh, I don't know. Actually, there's a great example in your book. Um, you mentioned the issue of turkey tails. Yes. And we were, <laughs> this is fascinating. I didn't realize that America was dumping so many turkey tails on Samoa <laughs> um, because we were producing this, you know, this is like a byproduct of making turkey. We're making a lot of turkeys and each turkey has a tail, which is also called like the Pope's nose or something else. And we don't really like it. It's not like it's just something we don't really like as a culture. Right. Right. And so what happened then? What did we do with it? Right. Well, so I have this quote in my book that starts off that section, and it's a producer that talks about how, um, and I've heard this term as well, but when we talk about livestock production, we're really talking about the maximization of of assholes per acre, and that's (laughs) only to play upon this idea that when you you increase the output of an animal or a a, a specific cut of an animal, Mm -hmm. especially, right, we talk about, for instance, in the context of health, about how we need to eat more white meat or something like that, but Mm -hmm. that forgets that an animal produces lots of different 
types of meat, white, dark, tails, noses, um, rear ends, etc. And so then we have these questions about what, what do you do with all this other stuff that's produced when you have this living organism that has all these parts to it that you need to find a market for. And so you're absolutely right. This is a... Um, this is a, a product of us wanting to industrialize to produce more to satisfy mm-hmm. our needs in the West, but it has this after effect of you have all this, these other parts that you have to then deal with and create commodity chains as a result of. And the really th- I, and I, the other thing I like about the turkey tail example, too, it's, it's an example of how you have a food that was introduced into uh, a culture a couple generations ago now in the Samoa. 50s and mm-hmm. 60s, which has become, it, by folks there, would be the find as a part of their national cuisine. When you talk to Samoans about what's a, what's a traditional Samoan dish, and I mentioned this in the book, too, that many of them would mention a turkey tail and a Budweiser. And, of course, you know, we would realize that those, those aren't Samoan dishes. Those are kind of I- iconic, why well, at least a Budweiser is an iconic dish, and yet it's been embraced by, by folks there. And so it does bring up these interesting questions of what, what really does it mean to, to have a, a, a national cuisine, or how, do, how does something become mm-hmm. f- f- go from being foreign to being something that's intimately embraced by a culture. Um, and it, those are really interesting social, sociological questions as well. It, a lot of it boils down to, and I mentioned this in the book too, this notion of conviviality, how food is, needs to be convivial, convivial for it to be kind of adopted and to be embraced. And that's exactly what these turkey tails are. These are eaten in moments of relaxation with others, same with a Budweiser. And when you have food that's consumed in that matter, um, people are more likely to like it. Mm. Um, or attach like, good feelings to it, yeah. Yeah, I think that's sometimes a piece that we need to think about, too, when you're thinking about alternative foods, is that, you know, you just can't give kids, say, a quarter um, when you talk about incentivizing, say, lunch programs to get kids to eat more fruits and vegetables, but you have to figure out ways to make that type of food more cool and uh, more social. Um, you know, uh, Coke, Coca-Cola um, came up with the ubiquitous strategy 50 years ago, and that's based on this idea that they wanted to get a Coke in somebody's hands the mo- whenever they were having a good time, and that's how right. Coke became associated with the with, Amer- with America's pastime. So, like ball games, um, uh, you know, theaters maybe going movie theaters, and um, you had this great example of um, how they um, managed to get Coca-Cola into World War II um, rations. Because it was like an alternative to, I don't know, it's, it was something that's not alcoholic and people wanted. Right. <laughs> yeah, they, exactly. It was non-alcoholic, had some caffeine, it didn't um, hinder military readiness. Mm-hmm. And so Coke had this great deal with the American government, essentially, where they made sure that they were able to get Coca-Cola in the GI's hands for a nickel, um, realizing that it wouldn't be widely profitable for the company. No, but then you have... But- yeah. You know, all these men and women coming back, and sure enough, they would want they want a coke then, because they're so sort of uh, like nostalgic for a taste of home, and then they get this coke, and then they have this positive association with it, maybe for the rest of their life. Exactly, yeah. as does everybody. Then the 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 countries that were freed by the Allied powers, they were they associated with democracy and freedom with the Coca Cola because they're the the the. the, the um, gentlemen and women that were there fighting on behalf of them were, were drinking that, and so it was it was an incredible, um, brilliant campaign by mm. Coca-Cola executives. Yes. So I had one thought I wanted to get back to about the turkey tails in Samoa and them adopting it as one of their like national you know dishes. Um, 
and this is something that, you know, a very successful project, I guess, then, or campaign, you know, to get rid of turkey tails, it, it definitely works. So what is, you know, is there any harm in that, you know, in that sort of exchange? Okay, they, they like, they now love turkey tails, um, and we didn't want it. So win-win, right? But actually, you noted, you mentioned that nowadays, because turkey tails were so cheap, it's more, um, it's it's cheaper than some of their own locally or domestically grown foods. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. That's that's, that's exactly part of the reason why they were adopted so widely is mm. because, um, and and they were they're cheaper than some of their traditional foods, but then also meat has a particular meat, yeah. iconic status to it as well. Um, and so um, it's certainly cheaper than what we would consider to be prime cuts, but it was an affordable meat that had a certain status too. So there was a status issue that came along with it and helped propel its adoption too um, in that respect. Mm, but is there any other problem that you see with that kind of, um, I don't know, global trade trade-off? Well, it's not, it's not, there's, I don't see a problem with the, the global trade per se. It's just what does it, what are the trade-offs, if you will, when it comes to global trade? And, and so when it comes to issues of, say, re- reducing, um, uh, dietary preferences around the world and tastes around the world, um, that has consequences, of course, most obviously, perhaps, is from a biological diversity standpoint and a cultural diversity standpoint. But then eventually down the road, um, it, it, you know, a turkey tails are, are not, say, the, the staple like rice is in some countries, but if you were to take and substitute turkey tails for rice, um, I don't talk much about rice in the book, but I do actually in the other book that you mentioned, The Real Cost of Cheap Food. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when you start having countries become dependent upon other countries for their staple foods, that's all well and good when those staple foods are traded at a, at a global market uh, and, they're, yeah. and they're affordable. You know, when you're dealing with an age of peak water and peak oil and peak everything else, um, there are some real concerns about what that dependence that we create in the 20th century is going to translate into in the 21st century when we start having um, the price of oil and other things creeping up and potentially having negative consequences in terms of what used to be affordable mm-hmm. cheap food yeah. to what might be affordable or available in the future. And then once those affordable foods dry up, you have a country that no longer has the capacity, the infrastructure, even the knowledge to be able to produce the domestic foods that used they used to produce generations go so it's it's you have to take a kind of a long view and think about mm. re- issues of resiliency and other things like that when you're talking about these things as opposed to an, an X moment in time mm. oh this is more expensive or mm. this is more affordable right now than food X Y and Z um, I think it's important to think about it in a lot kind of a larger context Wow yeah my head just exploded just then but it's uh, <laughs> it's very complicated um, Ma- Michael we're just gonna cut to a quick little commercial interlude and we'll be right back to more. Hey, this is Cynthia, host of Primary Food, here with Anna Bonengel, a registered dietitian with Eat With Zest, eatwithzest.com, and we are here to talk about Bob's Red Mill and superfoods. So, Anna, what is a superfood anyway? One way to think about it is if you think of foods along a spectrum, there are a few foods with fewer nutrients, and then there are foods that are packed rich with nutrients and antioxidants. And so superfoods are those that are on the furthest on the scale in terms of having the most nutrients and antioxidants. Which foods are considered superfoods? 
some are super well-known, like blueberries, kale, salmon. But now people are also going nuts over lesser-known foods like goji berries, acai, flax, and chia seeds. And a really popular one now is black garlic. So if I'm trying to eat better, should I go on a strictly superfood diet? Well, you know, superfoods are, of course, great, and I will say the more you eat, the better. However, eating only superfoods would make you deprived of essential nutrients from nourishing food groups like whole grains. Okay, got it. Well, that's great because our sponsor at HRN, Bob's Red Mill, produces a lot of delicious whole grain products. You know, to be honest, I'm a huge Bob's Red Mill fan. I love a lot of the the whole grains that they provide, but I particularly love they've come out with a blueberry hazelnut oatmeal cup. That is totally delicious. It's got classic superfoods like blueberries, but also some of the more trendy ones like flax and chia seeds. Um, it's It's a really nice mix of trend and tradition. Bob's Red Mill doesn't chase fads. They just keep working hard to offer as many delicious whole grain and organic food options as possible in an endless commitment to good food for all. Learn more at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. All right, we're back chatting more with Michael S. Carolyn. His latest book is called No One Eats Alone, Food as a Social Enterprise. And there are so many topics to talk about in this book. Um, But you, 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 you know, you briefly mentioned, you know, the, the, title as an inspiration and, uh, you know, because a lot of people eat alone nowadays, but you said that was a problem, Um, you know, eating at your desks, you know, in solitary without this like convivial feel that can lead to such great uh, associations with food. So um, why did you get inspired by that sort of uh, phenomenon of eating alone? Well, part of it is... um some things that have just happened within the last few years in, in, in our country here, and you're kind of seeing these phenomena happening in, in other kind of affluent countries, too, and that's the this idea of sometimes we refer to it as kind of how polarized we've become as a society, and I kind of like the term social distance. I think you might have even used that, that term, too, social distance, mm-hmm. and sometimes we conflate spatial distance, you know, how close we are to where food has been produced under the kind of the guise of local food, and we assume that but that also means that we're reducing our social distance with other people that populate our foodscape. And, you know, at one extreme, I visited a gated community in Atlanta that had a farmer's market. And here you have arguably local food, but with, you know, vast spatial or vast social distance where, you know, unless you were of a, a, an, an individual who lived in that gated community, you didn't have access to that particular foodscape. So it makes me interested about the kind of the convivial aspect of food is based upon some of the research that I've done and how some of these alternative foodscapes actually can help reduce some of that social distance, can actually bring people from different socioeconomic backgrounds together and create what I talk about in the book as as empathy, in a sense, because it certainly seems like giving the the visceral nature of how we talk to one another today and the political climate of today, um, never in my lifetime, at least, have I lived in a world where it seems like there's uh, there's there's us's and there's them's, and that right. really concerns right. me. Um, and I see food as maybe one way in which we can create some spaces that reduce some of that that us'ing and and theming, and get us to talk to one another and work alongside one another and and get to a place where we might actually be heaven forbid comfortable about eating at the same table with somebody that maybe has a, a from a different religion or whose skin color is different than our own. Um, and I, I find that hopeful when I when I talk about food in kind mm. of that way. 
Yeah, it's really interesting. You know, um, when, when you think of like a, a pig farmer and you're totally divorced from anyone in that field or that industry versus like when that person might be might happen to be your neighbor or somebody who you're friends of friends with. Um, you know, it's a really different feel. It's empathy. So how do we achieve that in today's day and age when everything is so um, fragmented and, um, uh, you know, there's like massive feedlot situations and instead of like smaller farms? Right. Um, well, we have to certainly have to do it intentionally because, you know, even the alternative food movement folks don't always get it right. Um, because if you, you know, if you were to locate, um, whether it's a farmer's market or community-supported agriculture in a place where it's absolutely impossible for, from, for someone from a lower socioeconomic background or a, a food desert neighborhood to, to be able to access those with, spaces. Yeah, yeah mm-hmm. you, you, have to, you have to think about these things intentionally. They just can't happen. There's no such thing. I don't believe that good food is inherently better. Or I'm sorry, I don't believe local food is inherently better. You have to, you have to think strategically when you're doing local food to make it better. It just doesn't happen on its own. Mm. All right. So um, examining this, um, the you know, so the breaking down of uh, f- distance between people. You mentioned, you know. Um, in chapter six called slow food to connectivity. Um, you know, you travel to a lot of, um, folks who are making the, this food and, um, what kind of, um, <laughs> there's like a lot of interesting, you know, encounters that you have here with, um, you know, you know, uh, folks that are making food, but also you're a little critical of the slow food movement and, um, how, you know, the initial ideas were well-meaning, but, um, you know, people aren't really enjoying, uh, you know, the food companies that, um, you know, make the food. You know, there's no, like, connectivity between the slow food movement and the, a lot of the people who make the food. In fact, there's sometimes, you know, a little bit of a agitation between the two. So how do we, like, break down the walls between, you know, the slow food and the rest of food production? Right. Yeah, well, my, my, my concern when it comes to slow food is that unless you're, you can take a, an approach to the problem with a big picture, it begins to kind of feel like a whack-a-mole sort of problem in that, you know, if I were to slow down to be able to spend the two or three hours to make some traditional ethnic dish or cuisine that's meaningful to me and, and culturally meaningful to people – you know, unless you change a broader context, then I'm going to have to speed up probably Mm. some other aspect of my life in order for me to allow me to slow down for those two or three minutes of my life. And so I I, I do worry that sometimes it becomes too uh, myopically focused on the actual act of preparation without thinking about um, this other context of why our lives are so sped up to begin with um, and how we can create some larger changes so that we're doing kind of everything more slowly. Because on the same respect, industrial big food is playing on this notion of being able to slow down too because you look at the slogans you deserve a break today all these things that um, are being marketed in some respects I've talked to execs about this you know they, they think they're selling slow food too about how you need a reprieve how you need to take 60 minutes out of your life and relax and let them cook their food for you you know come here where everybody's family Olive Garden's old slogan um, and so I, I sometimes don't think slow food's even critical enough um, and, and not thinking systemically enough either and it and it does the movement a disservice to some degree because then it opens them up for these critiques of whack-a-mole and other things like that 
Yeah. So how can we, like, you know, someone who's not maybe um, a researcher or actively working in, in food, um, how can we, you know, be a better food citizen or like how can we help out in any way? Um, yeah, that's, that is definitely the $10,000 question. <laughs> and I guess to some degree it comes back to why I like talking about foodscapes too because while we like the, the term food system now is starting to become more used, I hear people in USDA and politicians even use it, but my concern with the notion of a food system is that it tends to be conflated with a commodity chain where you have you have farmers, you have processors, you have retailers, so, and so you have a the big consumer. food system. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the end, there's the consumer, and I don't think of myself as just a consumer. We are we are more than just people that are cost maximizers. You know, we mm-hmm. love, we have interest, we care about things, we do things that are irrational. Um, and and my, my worry also with the notion of consumer is that it starts to reduce democracy to this idea that you can just vote with your dollar. And of course, any sort of democracy where the number of votes you get hinges on how much money you have is problematic too, but it also minimizes and reduces our, our capacity to think about social change as well. And so I really try to remind people that we're not just consumers. We certainly should try to vote with our dollar, but we should also vote with our voices and and become politically active in other ways, Mm. just beyond being politically active in the marketplace. Because to get back to the point you mentioned earlier, too, about how the the number of foods that we're eating is shrinking, you know, when your choice is literally between Coke and Pepsi in some cases, you know, if you're choosing between a GMO-free Salitas potato chip or a MSG-free Doritos potato chip, you know, they're both made by Pepsi. And so really, what what choice is that? And so to be able to generate real choices, I think we need to step outside the marketplace sometimes and think about working together and collaboratively and, and, and forming some of these alternative foodscapes. And I try to document a lot of examples in the book of how people have gotten together successfully working outside of markets to create food sick foodscapes that are accommodating to people of all socioeconomic, socioeconomic backgrounds and all cultures, um, and just try to learn from examples of yeah. that, have, that has happened across the world. Yeah. Uh, Michael, you briefly mentioned, I forget what we were talking about, um, but, you know, school cafeteria food choices. And, you know, if, if kids, oh, that's right, if kids don't like vegetables, you know, like how do you associate good feelings around this, um, you know, and... Uh, it made me think of, you know, recently um, the new agriculture secretary um, relaxed some of the standards in school food lunches. Um, I'm not sure if you heard about that. Like at first they had to, you know, with the Obama era, they tried to make them have more vegetables on in every school cafeteria. Right. And um, yeah. now they're kind of laxing up on that a bit because yeah. the kids didn't like them, um, the vegetables. Uh, you know, so much effort has been put into making kids like vegetables. I wonder how if, you know, like if we were to take a page from Coca-Cola, like how we could create that, uh, you know, better. Do you have any thoughts on ways to solve that? Well, it's just there. there is no uh you know, silver bullet when it comes to all of those things. I I love the idea of expanding the food choices for our our children on the Obama administration, but to be fair, what we did what we did is we spent millions of dollars to just increase food waste. I mean, honestly, that's kind of what happened. Right. Um. You, you know, you just can't make food weren't. accessible and think that if you build it, they will come. Um, you have to take steps then to make them want to come and not make it feel like they're being forced to like, either. Yeah. And so I I mean I. You know, 
to take a, a page from Coca-Cola, we do need to think about how we can make food more convivial. They don't have time to talk about what that actually means, but just thinking that you can force kids to do that isn't going to work because they're not, and they're going to grow up to resent it and then not right. want to eat it when they finally have the freedom to choose for themselves. And the, the incentivizing programs, you know, we've where there have been instances where you can give, they've been giving kids a quarter to, to take their, and put it on their plate, mm-hmm. it doesn't mean they eat it or it doesn't mean they eat all of it, and it certainly doesn't mean they necessarily enjoy it because when those incentives go away, their behaviors, which is often a problem with incentives, once you remove an incentive, the behavior tends to resort back to what happened in the past. So we really just, we do need to think about how we can make food, as I said before, cool, how to make it fun, um, and we don't seem to be doing a very good job with that. We're focusing so much on things like literacy, nutritional literacy, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. I've never met anybody who doesn't know that a f- fresh fruits and vegetables are not good for them, and yet look at what mm-hmm. they eat. I mean, I could say the same for myself. I know what a perfectly healthy diet is, but as my wife would tell you, it's, it doesn't always look like <laughs> what I put in my mouth either. So yeah. <laughs> it's, a, it's a good, you know, it's interesting to think about, and, and you know, hopefully with this perspectives, um, we'll, we'll get better at understanding those challenges. Um, I guess we're just about out of time, but um, Michael, you've been a great guest. And I'm just curious, what do you hope, you know, readers um, take away from this book most? Well, you already touched on one, just that our food escape is populated in ways that we often don't think about. But then also the other thing that I think my book is different from some of the other food writers out there is that I try to actually bring in some of the uh, expertise from social scientists and psychological scientists to right. talk about what does it mean to change behaviors, how do we do, what do we know about behavioral change, and just try to glean some insights from that literature. So as opposed to making this more just kind of a journalistic account, I'm trying to bring some of my own expertise to bear to help us understand how we might be able to get people to change their behaviors in ways that doesn't feel like the nanny state's forcing them to or in ways that may, they may make make them feel uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Really good lessons to learn. And your book has so many fascinating uh, research um, and topics and um, just really amazing um, work that you've done to write this book. Um, I can't thank you enough for joining us today, Michael. Well, I, I've enjoyed this talk a lot, and thank you for your praise. Thank you so much. All right. Well, check out No One Eats Alone, Food Essential Social Enterprise, and we'll see you next, next week on Eat Your Words. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.
Fresh Pickings is a podcast by Heritage Radio Network, presented by Bob's Red Mill. Love learning about food? Get more superfood for your brain with the featured podcast miniseries, Fresh Pickings. Go to bobsredmill.com slash fresh pickings. If I offered you a bag of nooch or a sprinkle of hippie dust, would you take it? If you're a pizza-loving vegan, you probably would. Today on Fresh Pickings, nutritional yeast and its various street names. What it is and why you should be putting it on your popcorn next time you go to the movies. Today I'll chat with Dave Arnold, co-host of Cooking Issues here on HRN, about what nutritional yeast actually is and what it is not. Then VLGL blogger Elizabeth Taylor is back to give us a recipe that uses nutritional yeast and for a bonus, chickpea flour. I'm your host, Kat Johnson. Thanks for joining us. So when I think of an every food topping, I'm usually thinking about parm, parmesan cheese, parmesan on pizza, on pasta, on a crunchy Caesar salad, even on my eggs in the morning. Or I might be thinking about ketchup because some people put ketchup on all of those things too. But what if cheese isn't your thing? Or we can all agree that ketchup on salad is pretty gross. Or what if it's just time to change things up a bit? Now, don't get me wrong, Parmesan will never go out of style, and ketchup and fries belong together. But variety is the spice of life. So getting in on nutritional yeast is a great way to add some spice and umami to your life. So variety, that's great and all. And I know what yeast is, but what is nutritional yeast? It doesn't sound very food-like. This is David, our engineer, and that's a great question, David. So nutritional yeast is sort of like vegan cheese. It goes great on popcorn and you can make vegan mac and cheese with it, but it's flaky. The folks over at Bon Appetit magazine called it nature's Cheeto dust, but unlike Cheetos, this is actually good for you. Hmm. That sounds intriguing. Still not sure what it is though. Okay, if you can't be convinced by my flaky, umami, cheese-like goodness description and that it goes on everything, then I'm going to have to get an expert to weigh in. I'm all about flavor, but not so much about specifics. So I'm going to check in with Dave Arnold of Cooking Issues to find out more. Hi, I'm Dave Arnold of Cooking Issues, and I have a lot to say about nutritional yeast, and that goes way beyond Kat's accurate and tantalizing but pretty vague description. Okay, great. I needed someone to step in here. Thanks, Dave. Can you please explain what this stuff actually is? All right. Despite the strange name, uh, it's definitely uh, food. So nutritional yeast is the deactivated, you know, dead, they've killed it form of uh, Saccharomyces uh, cerevisiae. Now, that's Basically, the same yeast that you would use to make bread, to make uh, beer. So it's it's definitely common. It's not some weird, like, funky thing. It's like almost all the good things we like to eat or drink it's involved with. Not almost, but, you know, a lot of the good things we like to eat or drink are involved with it. So the way it's produced is, is first you, you culture to grow it in a warm, sweet medium the same way that they would do when they're making beer or as a first start to whiskey. Then after it grows, uh, they kill it basically, and dry it out, uh, and you could use it that way. So is it nutritious? 
Well, if you believe in nutrition as a form of measuring foodstuffs rather than just deliciousness, then uh, yes. I mean, uh, there's a has a lot of. I mean, remember, it's a it's a complete organism, so it's got you know a lot of protein. So a quarter cup of it, which is quite a bit actually, a quarter cup of yeast, but that's uh, eight grams of protein, three grams of fiber, and five grams of carbohydrates. That's off the back of the package. I don't know that stuff off the top of my head. It has lots of uh, micronutrients like thiamine, niacin, riboflavin, uh, B6, B12, zinc, folate. You know, so it's, it's also something good for, you know, vegans who can't get a lot of those things out of, because uh, they, they're not getting a animal-based diets or, or, or dairy-based diets. So it's, it's good to get those things that are hard, sometimes hard to get out of straight plant foods. So why does it taste savory and meaty? Uh, well, yeast, and so uh, like there's a bunch of different kinds of yeast, and yeast is actually one of the things that's used in commercial foods to provide meaty taste. Different, but you know it's broken down to certain uh, degrees. So the protein in yeast, once it's like autolyzed or broken up, and a lot of yeast after it grows and starts dying will self autolyze, right? So it can produce a wide variety of flavors, but protein breakdown products, in particular from yeast, can produce meaty aroma, meaty flavors rather. Taylor, the creator of food blog VLGL.cooking. Today I have a recipe that uses not just one, but two of my favorite Bob's Red Mill products, chickpea flour and, of course, nutritional yeast. I'm so excited to have Elizabeth Taylor back to share another recipe with us. Elizabeth runs the blog VLGL.cooking, which is her collection of vegan low glycemic load culinary creations. In the last episode, Elizabeth explained the VLGL eating philosophy and gave us a killer recipe for grain-free granola. Let's see what she brought today. So, Elizabeth, Bob's Red Mill makes a lot of products that fit into the VLGL philosophy, don't they? They sure do, Kat. In addition to being low glycemic, meaning that it won't cause a spike in blood sugar, chickpea flour is packed with plant-based protein, iron, selenium, and folate. Chickpea flour has a mild earthy flavor and I love to use it for all kinds of savory dishes like this chickpea flour omelet recipe. When you mix chickpea flour with water, spices, and baking soda and heat this mixture in a lightly oiled pan, it transforms into a hearty dish that can be enjoyed at any time of the day. These chickpea flour omelets are denser and more bread-like than an egg omelet, yet richer and sturdier than a crepe. They're great with savory veggies, and my recipe uses kale and juicy grilled tomatoes with chipotle powder. That sounds really delicious. So how are you using the nutritional yeast in this recipe? Nutritional yeast is one of my go-to seasonings. It brings true savory magic to vegan food. In this recipe, I use it to season the chickpea flour omelet for an umami flavor. Thanks so much to Dave Arnold for the yeasty science lesson and to Elizabeth Taylor for sharing her tips for using nutritional yeast. You can find her recipe for the chickpea flour omelet with chipotle grilled tomatoes at bobsredmill.com slash fresh pickings. Well, that's just about everything you could want to know about nutritional yeast. If you liked what you heard, be sure to check out our other episodes of Fresh Pickings and learn more about Bob's Red Mill's favorite ingredients, including some delicious recipes and great coupon offers by going to bobsredmill.com slash fresh pickings. 
Bob's Red Mill believes in good food for all. For Heritage Radio Network, I'm your host, Kat Johnson. Thanks for joining us.